Hey everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arabilla, lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run courses and mentorship designed to help clinicians apply a person-centered approach to their practice. Today, we have the managing director of the Knowledge Exchange, Luke Bosselthwaite. Luke has also founded and owns the Biomechanics Clinic and has been doing some of the real work behind the scenes to keep both TKEX and two clinics running. So I'm looking forward to picking his brains to see how the fuck he does it all and share with clinicians in private practice some insights into business, finances, and how to run a successful healthcare business or two. And uh, selfishly, this is my opportunity to talk shit about my boss live on a podcast. So, mate, <laughs> thank you for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks, Dan. Um, and I also recommend listeners to check out three previous podcasts with Luke and guests where we deep dived more into ethical healthcare. But for today, with the hot topic of money, let's start there. Where does the money generated by employees go? And we're talking in the context of clinics in private practice in Australia. Yep. Um, and this is the, the cop-out, which is we're all used to. It depends. And it depends. We'll just leave it whole... there, then we'll, we'll finish the yeah, podcast. It depends, and uh, see you next time. Um, it depends on a bunch of things, but let's just talk about the, the basics first. So I think when clinicians are evaluating their worth and their pay and they might be looking at their books going, I saw, I don't know, eight hours of clients at an average of, we'll pick easy numbers so that my math doesn't hold us up here. So we'll say $100 an hour, right? And so they're going, I bought in $800 today. And when I look at my bank account at the end of the week and I'm looking at my fortnightly pay, I might only be getting, I don't know, $200 a day. So what, you know, what's that about? And where does all of that go is the question. So like, is, is my boss just driving around in McLarens? Most likely not. You know, most health practices aren't doing amazingly. You know, there's there's not too many clinicians, uh, clinics that are making super big coin. Um, so the first thing to think is, especially in the EP world, it's a little bit different if you're in, uh, say, physiotherapy where GST is exempt, but 10% of that money just disappears straight away in GST. Um, and then there's business tax on top of that. And that depends on how much tax the business itself can offset. So generally newer clinics that are growing will have a better offset because they're spending more money on things like equipment and other consumables. Uh, businesses that are established, been around for a long time, aren't buying a whole lot of stuff. There's not a whole lot of stuff to depreciate. That that figure could be higher. And then looking at what are the, the costs. So if you're in a bougie area, so if you're in Melbourne and you're, leasing a space in say Richmond or St Kilda you, your your rent or your lease on the building might be a lot higher than what it would be if you were out in the burb somewhere or or working out of someone else's clinic where you're paying a room rate perspective um, and then the equipment how you use all the stuff what are the repayments on that all of those types of things will make a difference to that number um but the other thing is it's like we we tend to look at what we capture um, 
in, in our net. So that's what we take home. And so gross is what, what gets paid. So things like on wages, uh, like in our business, if if wages are 25000 per fortnight, there's another $10,000 of superannuation and payroll tax and things that have to be put aside. So it's almost like another 30, 25, 30% on top of that. Um, and I feel like we could run scenarios until the cows come home about what's good nor bad. But I think if you're genuinely interested to where all the money goes, if you ask your manager slash boss slash whoever it is, I feel like they should be open enough to have a conversation with you. I know that if one of my team came in and said, hey, you know, I feel like I'm earning a lot of money, where's it all go? I'd quite happily open zero and go, "This, these are the books. Um, we used to spend a lot of time going through the numbers as a team. I don't do that as much anymore because I feel like it's just another stressor that the team may have to worry about that they may not be able to directly influence or it's another thing that they have to learn that they may not be interested in. So if anyone asks, more than happy to sit down and go through all the numbers. Um, we, we give overarching business health metrics um, from a cash flow perspective. Um, but yeah, we don't go into taxes and all the things like I used to with the team. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, yeah. So the um, expenses, the super payroll um, depends on if it's a new versus an old business, 10% GST. Um, mm -hmm. So tax costs might depend on multiple factors yep. and essentially um, ask for more info specifically. Um, and uh, most employers can be open to sharing the books, you'd say? Uh, I would think so. Like a I think the only reason they wouldn't want to share would be if there's something to hide and there just, there just shouldn't be um, or there's some sort of uh, fear that if they show their books that it'll create some sort of uh, either resentment or fear in the clinicians uh, that are working for them. So like maybe if they showed them books that were making a massive loss, the clinician might get a sense of loss of job security and start looking elsewhere and, and that's a, a real thing. I think the other thing is uh, to know is it's like often when the clinicians are having these thoughts around, oh, I'm bringing in $800 a day and I'm only getting paid $200 a day, this is bullshit, why am I getting paid so little, is often when your calendar's full and you've just done two or three weeks of straight work without a holiday or without a public holiday and all of those things and so you're feeling probably fatigued and feeling like you're bringing a huge amounts of value from a cash perspective to the business it's very rarely that uh, a clinician or team member will bring that argument after coming back from three weeks holiday when the calendar's empty in January because everyone else is still away on holiday and, and the business has to sort of cop, like, cop those on costs where expenses are the same. So when everyone's on holidays and Christmas is shut down and you know rent's still there, all of the subscriptions, like all of those things still exist. They don't go away. And so although, yes, you the business may be making some profit through June through to September, but often coming into December through to March is probably a pretty tough time for a lot of clinicians or a lot of clinics because December's scatty at best with people being tired and work parties and canceling because they're hungover and, you know, all of the things. January's got holidays and people are often away. February's very short. Um. Yeah, so there's a, a few things to consider 
But I feel like the, the key here is, is a conversation and, and understand that in nine times out of 10, you're not probably being ripped off. And on average, I think the average clinic, if they're doing well, is making somewhere between three to eight percent profit on after tax on turnover, which is doing well. Most clinics are at break even, running yeah, then, a loss one month, a small profit on the next. And I think that transparency and, and um, having these discussions is the first step. And I think you're right that the the context of asking the question is normally, I'm, I'm assuming for, and like rightfully so, to, for the purpose of finding out how the clinician, the employee can maybe make more money. Um, so, and you, there's two things. There's, I think before that, you mentioned business health metrics. If yep. you don't mind sharing some of those that you use and that you track. Yeah, 100%. So, but the biggest one is, is it, is it, does it add up? Are, are we keeping up with all of the bills and paying everyone a wage? And we're either at break even and there's a bit of money left at the end of the month. Now, you can feel like you have a really good month because you might get to the end of the month and go, we put 10 grand in the bank. And then the following month, you lose 15. So it's one of those things where you kind of have to know your business over time. And this is harder to do when you're a new business, but our business is relatively predictable. We have a pretty crappy halfway through December through to about the end of Feb. It's just people are away. Well, and that, that's our clients. I'm not sure if that's every business. And then sometimes we have a really quiet June as well because a lot of our more regular clients and they generally are from a higher SES, the ones who see us on a regular basis for more accountability and fitness rather than more of a, an acute clinical uh, or problem presentation, they all take off to Europe. <laughs> and so the those regular people disappearing for a month or two can can have an effect as well. I think your question was, how can they make more money? Is, is that... Yeah, and, and, and business health metrics as well. Oh, business health metrics. Like... So it's, it's a, do, is the business viable in an ongoing fashion? And sometimes you take a, a loss for a couple of months, knowing full well that you're about to have a, a, a better few months based on previous year's revenue and all those things. So you may be comfortable taking a loss, knowing that the next few months may drive a profit. And also when you do have a bit of a profit, not getting exciting and spend it all and putting some away. So um, uh, you may have access to your clinic's bank accounts. I know some of our guys do, and they may see, oh, there's 70 grand in the bank account. Oh, you know, why aren't we getting paid more if there's that much money laying around and all these types of things. But that disappears pretty quickly if you run two months at a loss at 15 grand and then you get your BAS bill and your activity statement bill, which is 30 grand, all of a sudden it's spent in the space of two months without increasing anything else. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, obviously, from a from a business perspective, metrics like are people giving us negative reviews online? Uh, have we had a, a sudden turnover of a bunch of loyal clients that are seeing us for their fitness or health or accountability? Is that all of a sudden had to change? Um, other things are have I had a big turnover in staff in the previous you know six or seven months? Is there something going on from a cultural perspective? They're they're harder to measure, um, and other metrics. So they're what we call lag measures. So they're the things that you observe and then you try and justify in your mind or reconcile why that may have happened. And then there's lead measures, which is like if I go and visit ten GPs a month, I would expect that I would get more referrals. So they're things that the actions that lead to the outcome. 
And so you can measure those things, but they're not an exact science. You can visit all the GPs in the world and get no uh, referrals. And then sometimes you'll just get 10 referrals in a week and you have no idea what led to that. And so they're the actions that you exhibit because in the past, if you do lots of that work, it leads to an outcome, but it's not a one-to-one relationship. Um, So we use them as sort of performance indicators for the team. It's like, hey, have you been doing the work essentially that leads to putting ourselves out there to help the people who need the help? And then there's that after the fact um, business metrics, which is are we making bank? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the differentiation with the different types of performance metrics, whether it's a lead indicator or a lag indicator. And and then going on the the general uh, purpose of asking initially would be to find out for the employee how to make more money or what the next step is or how to get a promotion or what's kind of the, if there is a step or a pathway for them um, to gain more income, what, what would you say, uh, how can clinicians in uh, a practice make more money? Yeah. Now, just so we're all clear where I'll be answering these questions with the biases of the constraints of probably my clinic, but also from some of the other people I've consulted with around their business and their constraints. I think a lot of the time when in the past, my team have approached me for more money, they often think that they then need to take on more responsibility. And that's somewhat true, but I think they perceive that as like management, that I need to be in charge of other people to be of value. And this can be problematic in that uh, you have a really good clinician whose books may be fuller than their, their team members. We don't measure that at our work, but it doesn't take much to look at a calendar and go, oh, they never have any spare spots. Um, and so then they go, okay, I feel like I'm working harder than everyone else. And, and this is the other constraint. Like our business, we put people in salaries and there's no rewards for having a fuller calendar than someone else. So potentially that may create a resentment that I'm fuller than other people. And so then they come looking for, well, then how do I get reimbursed if I'm doing more of the work and I I can talk to other ways to accommodate that. But if if they came to me and said, you know, how how do I earn more money? It's like, cool. What, what money are we talking about? Firstly, I want to understand from them what, what the, the metric of the money is. So is it looking for two grand or are they looking for 20 grand? And if it's 20 grand, then we probably need to find a way for the business to compensate for that. So how do then we either charge them out at a higher rate or do some sort of um, manipulation of how we can leverage their skill set to earn that amount of money? And if we can find a way where it's in line with the business's values, doesn't give me the X from an ethical perspective, and it's work that they want to do and that they're good at, well, then we'll try and implement it and then we'll evaluate. But the conversation is always like, hey, if I give you an extra $20,000 a year to run this project and the project's not working, we need to have a conversation. But in the meantime, let's give it a go and what help do you need from me? Those types of things. Um, I think if you always tie remuneration to just hours in the calendar, 
then one, it drives a culture of just people just working themselves into the ground. I, I, having the calendar full is important. I, I, I've got to be clear here. I'm not against having a full calendar, but if that is the only metric, then what happens is I feel like session times get shorter, session times get more expensive, and everyone just prioritizes session times. And it, in the short term, the business will do quite well. In the long term, the businesses miss opportunities to create efficient systems, to create other ways that generate revenue that aren't just putting bums on seats in a one-on-one format. I think it it misses the opportunity for clinicians to deeply think about a problem and solve it better than anyone else. Because the only metric that they're measuring progression for themselves for from a financial perspective is just time in front of another person. Um, And yeah, over six to 12 months on a new grad, I think that's probably pretty helpful, just getting bulk experience and seeing a whole bunch of different cases. But if you're three, four, five years out and that's the only metric you've got to manipulate, I think that can be problematic and probably leads to burnout and a whole bunch of other issues. Yeah, and just having this discussion and uh, looking at it from a zoomed out perspective of the business, like you mentioned that word compensation, like how does the business have to, what can the business do to compensate, to allow, to make space for it? I think that already um, provides that teamwork element that might be missing if it was more of the overly competitive kind of, uh, the only focus is to bring more people in and to see them for less time and to, you know, make the most of the people coming in and it just might lead to uh, limited opportunities. And and instead, if there's ways that, like you mentioned, having conversations with the employer, um, so finding ways that's viable for for both the employee and the business um, to to make that happen if if it's 2K or 20K extra salary. Yep. And, And some examples of that might be if you chose to spend your time I don't know, working on systemizing the social media campaigns. So to create greater exposure of the business within the community, there's no direct way to measure that success. Like that, that there is, if you're right into your marketing, you go, oh, these are engagement scores and this is how many click this link and this is how many people made it to our website. But there's a whole bunch of variables between the work that you've done and the outcome that can be manipulated that changes that outcome. And so it's very hard to directly reward someone on on campaigns like that. But what can work is it's like if the whole team are going, well, I can try and you know commit Sally into coming in to see me three times a week because that's better for my back pocket, or I can do my best to help Sally. And if Sally sees me twice or 20 times, that's irrelevant. And if I've got spare time in my calendar, I might do a blog or I might go and see the local GPs or I might set up a fundraising account for Movember. That's why I look like this at the moment. Um, And, you know, engage with um, people from Beyond Blue and Sons of the West. And like, this is some of the projects the guys have been doing at the moment. And it's like, it's going to be hard to measure, but I think long-term that business builds that credibility. And I think quality will always win in the end. And, and people remember that stuff. And people also remember feeling pressured into sessions that they feel they may not need as well. And I'm not saying that that's a direct relationship either, but you have to consider it. Yeah, absolutely. I think this segues 
well into the next question of servicing, what, what would be your definitions then on underservicing on overservicing? Um, okay, I think that's such a hard question to answer, but I think one would be if you have a algorithm or some preconceived idea of how many sessions someone needs based on a condition before actually having a conversation with that person and understanding their constraints and all that. I, I think there's some business models and this is not a shit canning them, but I just feel like that's probably going to lead to more over-servicing. Um, that's, that's one of the things that I think about, but I, I think it's when the the business or the calendar utilization or the clinic is put first before the patient. Um, underservicing would be having a, an over-anxious um, team member too scared to do anything so they don't value themselves to be able to actually help people. So after an initial assessment, they shouldn't need to see me again because I've given them all the information. I think that would lead to under-servicing as well. So I feel like if a clinician felt that, oh, I've seen this person three times, that's a failure, then that that's a problem as well. Um, you know, and I know I've spoken to this idea of over and under-servicing in the past, and I think sometimes that can be misinterpreted as if you see this person six times and you're failing, that's not the case. I've got a client who I've been, I was sharing this story on the weekend in one of the courses that I've been seeing for seven or eight years. And there's been multiple times during this time frame where I'm like, I failed. This person should not be seeing me still. They've become dependent, all of the things. But I had conversations with this client of mine and tried to, you know, set her free. And then when I re-engaged with her to follow up and see that's how life's going, she'd gone and engaged with a bunch of other clinicians, got new diagnosis, had spiraled into worse. And I was like, maybe if I, if she doesn't improve from a functional or pain status, but I can just stop her from engaging with more med negative medical health interactions, maybe that's my role. And if I can just keep her moving and meeting exercise guidelines and being a social network for her, then maybe that is the value I bring. And if she's prepared to pay for that, because the minute I disengage my services, she just went hunting for the next person. And seemingly her whole life has been around this and I've sent her and referred to a whole bunch of other services. And it sucks that I can't change that trajectory, but that's the trajectory that we're on at the moment. Not saying it won't change at some point, but is that a failure? Depends on what lens you look at it. Is it over-servicing? Yeah, yeah. Depends that, on what lens you look at it. Yes, and like we're looking at it from an individualistic kind of perspective as one clinician, it's uh, uh, hopefully not seen as a failure. It, perhaps this points more to a zoomed out systemic social issue with the misinformation around healthcare and what we can do within our constraints. And I think, like you said, uh, and I also see someone twice a week and I have been since I started running my own kind of business here in what, three years. And so if I saw that as a failure, then that would be a counter to the narratives i guess that can be uh, misinterpreted from um kind of person-centered practice and ethical healthcare yep. and i think i think that covers it the and then the nuances depend on each individual um, and the person that's in front of us as opposed to the 
business or profits or yeah. whatever's best for the, the clinic. Um, looking at job interviews as a business owner, what advice would you offer to clinicians to prepare for a job interview? I'm actually curious to know what your job interviews <laughs> involve as well. Ah, uh, wow. Um, so if I go to my last hire, uh, we sat down and we had a beer and just talked about what she wanted from a career. And it was really unscripted and loose. Um, the high before that, I tried to be really professional and have a whole bunch of questions around PD knowledge, goals, um, all that type of stuff. And but they both worked out. So I think with what I actually make my decision on is my gut feel. And I know that's just such a crappy answer. But at the end of the day, depending on your clinic arrangement, you're going to have to spend, you know, between 30 to 40 hours a week with these people and staff Christmas parties and social events. And you probably want to like them. I feel like you want to have something in common and you want to genuinely spend time with this person. Um, and all the better if they can teach you something as well. So I love it when I'm having an interview and they start talking about an area of passion or a, an area of knowledge that I'm like, oh, that's something I don't know much about. I get to learn from you. This is great. And that's selfish for me, but that's one of the things that I look for. Um, what else would I say? Uh, I think some turnoffs I can tell you what not to do in an interview is come in and tell me everything that you want and not ask what is it that I'm looking for or would like from someone I can tell you that if you come in and badmouth your last job and talk about all the problems that they had and take no ownership that you contributed to that culture and that place then that's probably a turnoff for me um, not to say you can't say anything negative but you need to be like, hey, this sucked and I tried to influence that and I couldn't and I was feeling frustrated and so this is why I'm looking. And, uh, you know, I, I just think this idea that you have the ability to reflect, you seem like a good human, you generally are in it for the right reasons, which I think most people are. And there's there's some other spark that I'm like, oh, this person seems cool. That's, yeah. that's what I go for the ability to get to know someone to build rapport to have a conversation have a back and forth and see that they're actually listening might also give an indication to how they treat clients patients and other humans so i think that's a very important yep. uh, skill set for clinicians listening to to prepare for and to look at the communication skills aspect um yep. i think maybe we, we get taught that we should have all the skills and the tools and the interventions or like you know the experience and and maybe that kind of gets us away from that path of just being human and listening in yeah. the moment oh, with a job interview. One of the other things is like, if they come in and I'm like, oh, you know, why'd you apply for the job? And they're like, oh, I saw the ad. Well, no shit. Um, <laughs> is it just because I was third on the list and we're just working through the list? Or when I say, did you, well, why'd you apply for the job? Oh, I jumped on your socials. You're doing some really cool stuff. I looked on your website and you guys have dogs here. That's cool. And then, you know, other things like they've actually done their research is, is a must. And then also their ability to follow up. So 
um, if they send in their resume, I'm like, hey, got your resume. I'll be keen to catch up with you. So we'll have a catch up. And I'll be like, yep, sweet. Um, I've got some other interviews. So, um, you know, we'll be in touch. And then I never hear from them for like 10 days. I'm like, okay, maybe they weren't that interested. But people following up just going, oh, I had to get on with the interviews. You know, did you need anything else from me? Do you want to have a chat about anything? I'm like, okay, they know how to follow up. That's a big win. So Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that um might even reflect on the way we follow up with clients as well. I think that's helpful skills to have. How often then should we see a patient looking at, you mentioned the, the algorithms of, you know, based on XYZ diagnosis, that's um, we should see this person for this amount of time. I think it might be helpful for prognosis, like looking at ACL injuries or any acute traumatic injuries for general yep. timeframes of natural healing. I think it's very, very useful, um, yep. but it might be hard to have a set number and have that certainty with without having a conversation with the patient. So this is a hard question, but how often should would you expect maybe your employees or, or clinicians in general to see clients for? What are your thoughts there? I don't have any expectations on what my team do. Uh, like, uh, I keep an eye on what's going on. And by keep an eye on, I don't scroll the calendar and go or look at any specific metric. But if I see um, someone in the clinic four times in a week, I'd be like, she's in here a lot. Like, what's going on there? It's like, oh, what's going on with Sal? Oh, you know, she's got xyz and this is why she's in I'm like, okay. yeah that makes sense I'd, I'd probably do the same thing um and i just don't think i would if someone came in once and was being underserviced the systems that i have set up i don't think i would pick up on that i think what i try to do is let the team make the call based on the context of the patient and that starts with a conversation around what are their expectancies? What is their condition? What are their financial constraints? What are their work constraints? What's their support network look like? What's their history of coping strategies in situations like this? Have they had plenty of injuries before and they sort of know the drill? Or is this their first time injury and they're really concerned and have high fear or catastrophization or worry? And do they need more consistent reassurance? Like that, there's so many factors that play into how a patient and a clinician comes up with a treatment plan that's reviewed at every session that to me to try and build a system that measures people's adherence to that is just ridiculous so i think i've got a team that i just trust that they're doing what's right for the patient and that's as far as i think about those things yeah and, and hopefully there's a the space for people to feel comfortable bringing that up if they are having problems or, or struggles with particular cases. Um, oh, so they feel, you know, open and not, you know, shamed or judged if they didn't see or rebook enough. Yeah. So, yeah. I think one of the arguments is oh, I need to see this patient more. So I have more of a rapport or, or more trust with them. <laughs> I, I, I agree in, in principle that obviously the more you hang out with someone, the more you'll trust them and the more, the more you'll have to a point. If, if that, the, the time that you spend together comes from a place of the only reason you're spending time with them is to try and build rapport, then I feel like that's not the best way to do that. I think rapport and trust comes from a genuine 
I just want to help you have the best outcome based on the constraints that you have. And if that person's sitting there in front of you going, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. I just want you to tell me what to do. And they're showing all of these signs of they're not coping. It's like, okay, well, we might see you a couple of times this week. And, but the goal over time is to let you know that you can do this, that you're not as vulnerable and weak and all of the things as you've sort of communicated to me at this point in time. Um, then if you've got someone else who's like, oh, yeah, I just wanted to check that it was okay. It's like, okay, well, like at this point in time, everything's going well. So you got, you know, you called us the first time, you can call us again next time you're feeling concerned or you feel like you're not progressing. But here's what I would think the next three to four weeks look like. Doesn't mean you need to see me in four weeks. You can see me next week if you want. Um, it's really up to you. What, what do you feel comfortable with? And they go, oh yeah, no, I'd be happy to come in next week. Cool. Oh yeah, I might, I might put it out to four weeks. Yeah, awesome. And if you get into trouble, just pick up the phone and ring me. Yeah. Or if you get to four weeks and everything's going hunky dory and you're back to everything you want to do, just pick up the call. You know, like you have control of this situation. Yeah. The uh, the the fact that they can also reach out anytime. I think is also helpful. So there's an open communication and, and having that clear from the initial consult, that like please reach out via email or whatever the system is, wherever the listeners are. Um, email is generally easiest or a call um, to, to know that there's open communication um, and it's not, um, they don't have to wait until the next session if they've got a major question, for instance. Um, and then we the clinician can accommodate for that. Yeah. Um, I think maybe that's, that's often also not talked about in these kind of discussions of how often should we be seeing patients that it's a shared decision and we obviously have our duty of care if someone needs to immediately get medical attention we have a different kind of system set up where we refer on and you know do the appropriate things that we need for the medical attention and the care that they need um, and then barring that we have a full review of like you mentioned the whole case what their goals are what they wanted from the first session their expectations and that's these are the the determining factors that it's a bit more complex multifactorial than just a simple you know if they have back pain you see them twice a week for the first two weeks and then once a week after that it's like you know, it depends like you yeah. said <laughs> everything depends hopefully people go more into in depth of like what it depends on because i fucking hate that answer of just yeah. it depends um moving on to i mentioned success like how to run a like hearing how you run a successful business and i realized my mistake of not defining success and how the idea of success can be different <laughs> um, according to each individual, each the values of each company and clinic. So for you, what, what would success be? Maybe starting there and then we can look at what, what might failure be uh, to you and to your business. What's success? Yeah. Um, so there's a, like, if you were to look at it from a business mindset or lens, it, it, success is making bank, right? And, and building an asset that potentially could sell and that you could retire on. And that's a component that does motivate me. Like I'm not adverse to making money, just to be clear, but it's not the only thing that matters to me. You know, uh, there's been times where this business has made some really good money and the culture was shit and I didn't like being here. And there's been times where we were in Cadbury all sorts as far as, you know, uh, finances and business structure and all that. But I was just having a really good time and I love being here and it felt like we were working on something important and I felt like we were being successful at that point in time. So it, it's this, 
balance of and and it changes there's there's times where you think i i need to put more of a focus on making this more financially viable and more secure and things like that and there's times where you're like it's not having enough impact at least that's the the lenses that i look at so there's a couple of things it's like do i enjoy my time here because i spend a lot of time here and and do i get the vibe or the feel that the team is having a lot of fun or feeling fulfilled or progressing or learning at work. Um, that's a component. Then it's other the people who interact with us genuinely doing better or are they, are they in the perception that they're doing better? Is it making bank and, and are we having a big enough effect or are we changing something? And, and so I'm and our business and our clinic is probably different to a lot of clinics because we are intertwined with knowledge exchange and the biomechanics and we have some some goals and some business operations that don't make sense from a business perspective but make a huge amount of sense from an impact and social perspective you know this podcast for one it makes no money but I think it's valuable and I think a lot of people do get valuable from it um so it's this balance of what feels right to me and getting this sense that I'm achieving those things that I've set up that are important for me at that time to make me get the sense of success. Yeah. So looking at the, the, the values of what you'd like to be working towards and what's most important to you and how that can be maybe different from a numerical number in, in terms of finances and not to negate that, that is also important to be financially viable and to make profit and make bank. Yep. Um, but also looking at the impact, I think was the word that you used and the the effect. And if we can, for instance, as a kind of mentor for me, it's it's more the skill sets that mentees or clinicians have where it's like, oh, wow, you're asking completely different questions to when we first started working together. It seems like you're, you're on the right track for your learning and growing. And that, that gives me more satisfaction than if they were to see me for 20 sessions because they need my help. It's like, ah, oh, if I can give them the tools to manage and the, the skill sets to, to better continue on their journey, uh, I think that gives a bit more meaning to my work and I would enjoy my work a lot more. So I think looking at what makes work meaningful is also a factor in what makes the success, we'll say. I just want to be clear that if, if your goal is to make money in business, that's not wrong. Um. But if it's the primary goal and you don't care about at all about your impact or client success, then then I think that's a problem. But I also think it's very hard to make money if you don't care about those other things. Like you have to genuinely solve a problem. Um, and it's more than then the ethical lens comes over the top. It's like, is it actually a problem or are we making it a problem? So can we take something that's maybe innocuous or not a problem and create a whole bunch of fear around that and solve us a problem that didn't actually need to be solved in the first place. Um, Cause there are businesses that do that and either on purpose or not, or then being aware that they're solving problems that probably don't need to be solved is, is a whole nother discussion. But I think most at least small business owners in this space in the, the allied health space were generally really passionate, good clinicians that worked their bum off, probably felt stuck and then decided to go out on their own and then was faced with a whole bunch of hard work and trying to be an accountant and a web designer and a marketer and a, like all of the hats that you have to put on to run a business. 
got a little bit overwhelmed, made it through that phase. Now you're hiring people and now you're starting to set up, you know, strategic plans or goals for the business or vision statements or mission statements about what success looks like. And I just want to, at the time that you write those, that may be what success looks like. And then six months later, success may change because success to you may be the flexibility to be at home with the kids. And it might you might not care about the profit goals that you set up six months ago before finding out that you're going to have a bub. Or you may want it to have a big social impact. And then that changes because, you know, you've bought a house and interest rates have doubled your house repayments in the last 12 months. And now finances really matter because of the impact it's having on you and your ability to treat people. And that's okay. Yep. So the adaptability of that success and the vision statement. Um, so it's like a profits making bank and what else on top of that? Yeah. Um, looking at in, in terms of money, again, if patients can't afford seeing you and I, I know that you, you may, I think you used to have bulk billing for, for patients and, and offer the full hour. And I believe it has changed, but you can correct me where wrong. Um, and yeah, how do you handle if a, a patient comes in with pain and they, they genuinely can't afford services? What are the, the options? Yeah, of course. Um, so we, we do do bulk billing and it used to be an hour. We've dropped that back to half an hour. It just became unsustainable and it's still 50% longer than the requirement of Medicare of 20 minutes. So, you know, whether it's right or wrong, it's what we can do at the moment with, with those patients. And we've also limited that between 10 and three, which is our quieter times as a clinic. Um, I think any clinic that has a mixture of clinical and those people who want the accountability and the ongoing health accountability stuff after overcoming their injury because they like the space and it's inviting and all that tend to want to do that before and after work because they're back at work and functioning and all of those things. And so we tend to be quieter during the day. So that's when we, we cap it. Um, is that fair? It, you know, are we giving them equal opportunity from an objective perspective? Not really, but are we giving them more opportunity than potentially other clinics? Yes. Is it the best that we can do at the moment? Probably. Um, but outside of just doing things cheaper, there's other things that we do. So um, because I have the team on salaries and they're not affected by how many clients they see or not see i they have full autonomy to just see someone if they decide that that person is really just it's going to change their life and all of the things and they want to do it you can go for gold they're not going to get in trouble for doing that so that they have autonomy to just do it as they please and not charge uh, the other things that we do is we've got a whole bunch of stuff resources that we can send patients so it's like hey you know you've come in generally we only find out about the, the inability to pay is if they ring and they haven't been on our website and seen our prices. And then when they hear about them, they go, oh, I can't afford that. And then the people at reception are, are trained to say, hey, we've got these bulk billing options. Maybe you can speak to your GP around getting an EPC, blah, blah, blah. Is there any other ways that we can fund this? And then if it's still a no, um, then it's like we just triage them on the, what, what's going on. Maybe we can send you some information that might help you here's a, a a link to a whole bunch of websites that have resources for people like yourself. Um, here's an email, you know, and we'll generally get back to them and it doesn't happen that often. 
Um, and there's only been one case I can think of where I felt like the person was genuinely taking the piss and just emailing and ringing and constantly. I was just like, hey, I feel like we've been really good. I've got a, an email train here of about 38 emails and, you know, 49 videos and, you know, like um, that, that's sort of all we can really do. And rightly or wrongly, that's that's where we got to with that. Um, is there more that we can do to make healthcare cheaper? Yes. And there's some stuff that I'm starting to work on now for next year. Uh, yeah, I don't know if that's that answers your question. That's what we do. Um, I'm sure there's people that have, oh, like then having cheaper session stuff. So we have group rehab where, you know, it costs about the same as like a, an F45 or a BFT class, but it's run by physios and EPs and everyone's got their own customized program specific to their condition. And the, rather than having a, someone yelling at a bunch of people, they just circle the room and chat to people about their constraints and the barriers that they're facing during that class or that their program. And we go from there. Yeah. And and you have your prices on your website as well for. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So when we get to the, the booking link, it's all there. Yeah. I think that also helps with the transparency from the start. Um, and I think the reason for that is there's, there is the uh, idea of um, this person can't afford to see me. And there's the insecurity from the clinician when they are offering maybe more service or, or help or rebooking. So I think that hopefully that gives some options for clinicians in those scenarios, if they feel that genuinely someone needs the help, but they might not be able to afford it. And that speaks to our own judgment as well before even asking them or even having a conversation. But hopefully this gives clinicians some options to have that conversation with the client to see how they can uh, fund the sessions or to refer on or to provide group sessions or as you mentioned, all the other options. Yeah, but one of the things that we changed as well, we used to only do hour sessions and it was because we thought, oh, if we had more time, we can generally unpack these more complex issues with patients. And, you know, it, it gives our clinicians a freedom to have these harder conversations. And then in reflection, that was pretty non-patient-centred. Like in the attempt to be patient-centred, we were taking away options for the patient to pick a shorter time frame. Um, and so now now we, we we do half an hour sessions, 45 sessions, hour sessions, and they can pick that online. And so they sort of dictate the time that we have to work in a bit now. Um, we, we also have an hour and a half session available to them. We've tried to give them a, like a bit of a matrix on which session that they should pick. So it's like if you've got two or more complex chronic situations going on, try and pick a longer session because there'll probably be a bit to talk about. Um, but it's it's up to them. And then our reception, when they book in, we'll send an email saying, hey, you know, this is what to expect. And if you run out of time, the, the clinician will let you know, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, so the options on the, the time that they need. Yeah. Top three books for clinicians looking to learn more about business. And maybe we'll keep to clinicians who are starting up or looking to start or have just started uh, the owning a business or owning a clinic. What would you recommend? Um, so new into business, um, the, the biggest thing about business is often when you get to the point where you're ready to jump into business, you've spent a lot of time thinking about it. So, so trust yourself, back yourself in and just have a crack. Um, but if you really want to engage and um, see what other people are doing or getting in some advice, one of the things 
uh, so go categories. So from a, so you don't go and overcommit to something that you're not even sure someone wants. There's there's a book uh, called the Lean Lean Startup, which is this idea about launching a minimal viable product and then iterating from there based on customer feedback, but also the the interaction with that product that you see or your business. Um, so that's a good one about critically appraising what you think people may want and how you roll it out may be different to how the the market responds to it and what they think they want, but also not always taking customer feedback with hundred percent prudence. So like what people think they want is not what they want a lot of the time. And there's some really good case examples on that. And so some of the times when you're new in business, you tend to respond to what your patients tell you that they want and you just change your entire business model in response to that feedback. And maybe that's not the best thing for a business. Um, so that's a really cool book for that. Um, if you're pretty clear on your business model, but you're not really sure about finances, there's a book called Profit First, which I think has some valuable points. Um, and then um, look, at least for me, there was, there was a book uh, called The Compassionate Leader. I think it was called The Compassionate Leader about what sort of leader you want to be. Um, so there's three and we'll put some links in the, the show notes. Yeah, I suppose. The, the Compassionate Leader, Lean Startup and the second one from memory. First, profit First. Profit First, yeah. yeah. If, if you're in a business, a small business or even a large business and you're having a really tough time um, and maybe things aren't going the way you expected, there's this great book called Turn the Ship Around, which, you know, is, is, is a good one if you need to make some changes and, and how to do that. Um, that's a really cool book. All of these books have their problems, just so we're clear. And a lot of books that you read around business strategy, finance, leadership styles, often aren't in the context of healthcare and you need to consider the problems that may arise from that, especially in the marketing world. Um, so most marketing books are about how do you highlight a problem and, and show that person how bad that problem is for them and then show them how only you can solve their problem with your specific technique. And it's like, if you look at that in the context of healthcare, it's very nocebic and I think can create a lot of problem and you think need to think about the social uh, impacts that some of these marketing messages may have. So, yeah, that's my... Yeah, my word advice or hope that you can consider those things. And for listeners who are thinking about gaining some more insights and extra help with specific problems that they have, yeah, could you offer some business consulting? Could you tell us a little bit more about yeah who who that might be for and what that kind of involves? Yeah, so to be clear, I don't have a course or like a monthly newsletter or you know sign up and I will tell you everything to do from go to woe that's it's not what I want to do um, what I would like to do is if you're in business and you're stuck and you're feeling trapped and you're not really sure what to do and you don't want to sign up to three grand a month of coaching to solve a bunch of problems that you didn't even know you had yet but you've got this really big concerning one um, book in we'll sit down for an hour or two and just just chat about it and solve that problem and then if we never speak again that's cool as well um, so for me, at least over the last 10 years, I've sort of gone in and out of coaching type uh, solutions and most of them you're forced to sign up into a package 
And generally when you get there, it's because you're feeling vulnerable about something. You've got a problem that you haven't solved and maybe you're lacking the self-efficacy to solve it. So you look for someone to help you. Um, and it's normally pretty expensive and not tailored. And so uh, I just think that there's a bit of a, not a gap in the market. This is not really to make money. It's just, I don't think anyone's doing that one-on-one -on -one thing at, a, at an affordable rate for small healthcare practice owners. So if you just want to ring up and chat to me nine times out of 10 with people I've worked with in the past, it's like I've been in their exact situation and I generally share, here's what I did rightly or wrongly. Um, but, you know, what do you feel about it? What are the options to you? Because what I did may not be financially viable for the person I'm talking to. Or what I didn't do was because I didn't have the finances or some other constraint to do what they may be able to do. So it's just to chat about the problem and hopefully throw some shit at the wall and see what sticks and come up with a solution. Would you have a couple of examples of, of just common problems or scenarios, situations that you've heard? Yeah, so things just like, hey, I've got a team member. It's just not working. You know, like I love them. They're really nice, but they're just, their calendar is just always empty and I don't know how much longer I can afford them. What do I do? So we run scenarios on what it would look like to just sack them and cut losses, what it would look like if we had a conversation with them around going back to part-time, what it would look like if we gave them some really strong KPIs around calendar filling, even though that may feel like it's ethically wrong. What, you know, what are the other things? And then try and make a call either at the end of the hour or, you know, let them think, think about the conversation for a week or two um and then generally the question is what would you do and i share that um and so what, like in that specific scenario we actually managed to find another business who was also pretty small in the allied health world who was too scared to hire because they couldn't take on a full wage and they split the cost of this person across the two and it worked out well um that was one scenario Another scenario was uh, someone rang me up going, I'm thinking about getting into small business, but I also want to launch a digital product and so I'm thinking about doing both of them at the same time. And then after a long conversation, they decided against opening their own clinic. It was just going to be a distraction to what they actually wanted to do. Um, and so the the narrative around that was, you know, having a fallback plan is a plan to fall back, like just go balls to the wall. And we discussed what would happen if they failed and not a whole lot. You know, bruised ego, but um, is that enough case examples? Yeah, absolutely, and it saves like having to sign up for a, a whole membership option if there's a specific uh, scenario and problem that someone's facing, and having that space to talk with someone who has experience and some insights, and having just the transparent, honest conversations back and forth to reflect on the pros and cons and the options, I think is really helpful. Whether they're starting up a business or already in, yep. For people who want to reach out to you, best email or phone? Um, yeah, luke at thenowledgeexchange.org or um, luke at thebiomechanics.com.au. I'll answer either of those. Legend. So luke at tkex.org or luke at thebiomechanics.com.au. That's correct. Or just check a message on our Facebook groups and ask for me. We'll, we'll get back to you somehow. Amazing. Mate, pleasure. Thank you for sharing some insights and I'm sure we'll, we'll be on again. Really appreciate your time. Until the next one. Thanks, buddy. Speak soon.